You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. We have a great new guest for today's episode, and that's Carol, who I first noticed on Twitter. And then when uh, Carol was a co-founder of TransVoices.org, it was a kind of an exciting initiative that felt like it was really filling a gap that was starkly needed. As myself and Sasha, we've worked in this kind of field for some time and we've become incredibly concerned about is there a space for the detransitioners? Where is the space for the detransitioners? And there's no, there's no kind of surprise that you came to my notice, Carol, because it was such a desperately needed service that you brought in. So you're very welcome. We're looking forward to hearing your story. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, so we we have so many kind of interesting observations from interviews you've done, writing you've done, um, conversations you've done online. But maybe we can start with just kind of a brief introduction of, you know, what is your story? Most people who listen to this podcast may be familiar with with you and how you got to do this work, but maybe you can share a little bit about your background. Okay. Well, I am one of those rare older detransitioners. Um, I started transition at 33 and uh, detransitioned at 38 and I'm 40 now. So it's been about two years since I stopped taking testosterone. Um, uh, I'm a lesbian and of the butch variety. So a masculine presenting woman. And uh, that's, I guess, my basic, my basic background there. That's your elevator pitch. That's my pitch, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where to start. I suppose I, I, my first instinct is to ask, what was your childhood? Where are you gendered as far as in childhood? How did it come about? You know, when I was, uh, when I was seeing my therapist for, to transition, um, I put in that I was, I, I it put it, I put it in my head that I was dysphoric in childhood, you know, like okay. hindsight, but yeah. it really wasn't, you know, if I, I wasn't gender dysphoric as a child, I was disconnected from my body. I was, um, I did not like being a girl. I struggled with, um, the things that was expected of me as a, as a girl, you know, I didn't like dresses and things like that. And I guess by nowadays standards, that could be called gender dysphoria. Did you present as a boy or did you present as a girl? If I could have presented as a boy, I would have. However, I mean, well, I guess presented as a boy. I meant I liked boys' clothes and boys' toys and boys' uh, sports and things like that, you mm -hmm. know. Um, but I was not allowed to present as that. My family was very gender conforming, very strict about gender roles. So dress as it was until I was about nine or ten. <laughs> really? I yeah. can't imagine you in a dress. Well, it was a very religious family, so dresses were required. Girls were not allowed to wear pants or shorts or bathing suits, so we didn't swim. It was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a summer from hell. Yeah, <laughs> no yeah. shorts, no swimming. Mm. Um, 
You know, you, you did this interview for the Velvet Chronicle, which is Julia Hassan Robertson's um, website. And you talked in there about being told that, you know, just the way your mannerisms were, that you were acting like a boy and that you had to act like a girl. And you said it started around nine years old and that continued like throughout your life. And I just wonder how much do you think that experience of your natural way of being not kind of being accepted in your family? How much do you think that impacted your discomfort, your disconnection with girlhood? Oh, I think it was the the main thing. I mean, (laughs) it was a big, you know, it's a big part of that when you're not accepted as a child for just being you and told that just the way you are is wrong. Where do you go from that? You know, and if in my case, it was my mother that was very hard on me about not walk. She would tell me I walked like a boy. I don't even know how boys and girls walk. I was like eight or nine at the time, but she would tell me I needed to walk like a girl. I don't know what that meant. Um, And she was very, you know, hard on me about um, I wanted to play football. And she told me absolutely not. Um, One time I, I was being babysat by uh, our church's pastor and his wife, and they had a couple sons and I got to play football with them. And I was so excited. And when my mom found out, she threw the biggest fit you'd ever seen. She screamed and yelled at the pastor. And then, I mean, this is the pastor of the church. And I was really shocked as a child, but my mom like lost her, her business over this, you know, because she did not want me to like participate in those things. So it was a very, very rigid. So yeah, that had a, a huge impact on me. Could I, and it, could I it just ask- continued. Was she hyper feminine? No. Wow. No, not really. I mean, my mom. My mom was feminine. You know, she did her hair. She wore makeup. Okay. But my mom. My mom grew up uh, f- uh, one of four daughters, uh, and that only daughters. And my grandfather pretty much raised them kind of like boys. They were expected to go out and do boys' work, men's work, bale hay, and stuff like that. Ride horses. So my mom wasn't necessarily super hyper feminine. And the funny thing is, is really none of my aunts are that way either. Like with their kids, they didn't really get too bothered over that stuff. I, I don't want to be a, a kind of a, an armchair psychologist, but do you think she she uh, almost saw in you butch lesbian early and reacted? Yeah, in hindsight, I do think that's the case. And I also think my mom's a closet case. Yeah, I think I think my mom is go. at least I think yeah. my mom is at least for sure bisexual and she could very well be lesbian. But I, I me and my siblings used to snicker back and forth at each other with the way she'd interact with her female friends. It was pretty obvious that she she was interested in them further than what most heterosexual women behave with their friends. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Whoa, six minutes in and we are deep <laughs> in some interesting psychology here. <laughs> you remember Carl Jung's great, I think very profound quote. What is it? The biggest the biggest danger to the child is the unlived life of the parent. Oh um, yeah. I believe wow. that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I when I came out when I finally came out to her at about twenty years old, uh she had one of those serious sit down talks with me where she told me it was completely normal to totally want to have sex with your female friends, but you just didn't do it because, you know, you didn't do it. And I was like, no, mom, that isn't normal, though. <laughs> Heterosexual women really aren't like that. 
Wow. That's so incredible. Do, do you think that, well, I don't want to get too much into your mom's psychology because yeah. <laughs> to be fair, she's not here to share, but that's just a really fascinating way to respond to your daughter's coming out. That Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very justifiable if you have, not justifiable, but understandable if you have lived the life she, she perhaps chose to live. I could see she's thinking, no, do it my way. My way is the only way because she honestly thought that. And what about yeah. your dad? Was he? No, my father died when I was 18 months old. So I didn't have a father. I had a stepfather who was very abusive. That came in the picture when I was four. And um, because my physical abuse started at four, that's where my disconnection from my body started. So um, I was very disconnected from my body. And I never. it wasn't until just a couple of years ago after detransition that I feel like I actually fully reconnected or ever maybe connected with my body. So wow. I live, you know, I just was, it's funny. I just told my wife last night that it's amazing how I, I went my whole life feeling like I was wrapped in cotton, even, even touches, even people touching my skin or hugs and things like that just felt disconnected and not real and uncomfortable. Wow. Yeah. The lack of disconnection from my body was, it's a huge part of that. And I think a huge part of the believing you're trans, right? Because that's one of the big things that everybody talks about. They don't feel like their body's theirs. They don't feel like they should have that body. Well, yeah, that's right. but there's lots of reasons one might feel that way. Mm -hmm. And can I ask what your teenage years were like? Very early on, I decided I wasn't going to go to high school. So I never went to high school. So my teenage years were spent at home, very isolated, uh, had no friends. And I took care of my brother and sister. Wait, why, why did you decide you weren't going to house, high school? And how were you allowed? My mom didn't care. My oh. mom said, fine, you want to stay home? Stay home. Take care of the house and your, your siblings. Because she was working. And the school district didn't know. I don't know. I just slipped through the cracks, I guess. But yeah, I never went to high school. When I was 21, I went back and got my GED and then went on to college. And I am a college graduate now. So I did, you know, I did well on my own, but um, yeah, I never went to high school. People are usually floored by that. Ooh. And the reason I chose not to go to high school is because I was always, I was already getting made fun of in school for being masculine. And um, I, I had a bit more facial hair and a bit more like body hair than I seemed to, than other girls seemed to have. And I was already getting made fun of for that. And I knew if I went to high school, I'd have to shower. And I was really, really petrified of exposing my body and getting just ridiculed. Oh. But, I quit, but I couldn't share that with my mom. I couldn't tell her any of those things. Because mm. my mom, you just didn't talk to my mom. You didn't open up to my mom. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I just was like, I don't want to go. I'm not going. And I just put my foot down. and was like, I'm not going. Wow. That's really interesting. You know, as, as a person with like Arab heritage, I remember being in school and I went to school in Arizona in Scottsdale where like all of my classmates were, you know, white girls. And I had the darkest, hairiest arms of anybody. <laughs> Me too. And I remember, yeah, still. And I just remember feeling so unfeminine because of that. Like my mannerisms weren't necessarily masculine, but it's really something that I don't think everybody appreciates unless they've been through it. How confusing it can be to have 
dark body hair as a female. And it's really, really like untalked about, but that was so, it was such a big deal for me. And so I, I can't relate to all of your experience, but I certainly relate to that and being made fun of for that and being noticed for that. It's really complicated. Yeah. It's very, it's very shame inducing. Like it's very viscerally shaming. It's yeah. It's, Mm. and, and it's funny how, and this is the thing that is, I found, I do find kind of comforting later is it really wasn't the girls who were making fun of me. That was the boys. Mm. It was the boys that were being assholes about it. Right. Sorry if I, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Um, and it was the, it was the girls that were usually like, shut up. Like, you know. That's yeah. funny. Cause I, I'm not particularly hairy. I'm Irish. I, I don't think, <laughs> but anyway, not dark hair, etc. And um, I remember seeing girls in the class who were really darker. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm glad I don't have that one. <laughs> I had everything else. <laughs> I had bad skin. I was huge. I was everything. But I remember clocking the girl who was actually beautiful. But I remember clocking her arm hair going, wow, that would be hard to deal with. Or I remember clocking that. That's a whole thing. Oh, yeah. I got I got made fun of for my arm hair when I was like eight. I was already yeah. hairy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was... Art. And now it's so hair removal is so insane. I presume there's eight year olds, nine year olds now who are totally distressed about their yeah. arm hair. Totally. Because it's even worse now. It's weird. It's funny, too, because it wasn't till detransition when I started to like actually hang out with and see detransitioned women who detransition but didn't get rid of their body hair like don't mm-hmm. shave just let it go i've seen that and, uh, yeah yeah and other women too who were like for example especially in like more feminist circles who are like screw this i'm not shaving my legs or anything like that yeah. that i saw women with body hair and realized i actually don't have that bad of body hair mm-hmm. so it's really cool to see women that don't shave it off or get rid of it because you realize how normal you are mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. It's yeah. all really relative to like what you're seeing around you. Yeah, and so exactly. when everybody around you is working so hard to remove body hair, it makes it creates this illusion that like women are hairless, but that's actually not really true. Not at all. Um, no. If we let just let ourselves be. So that's really interesting. You you mentioned Carol that in your introduction that you're this quote rare um adult detransitioner, but actually you're not that rare. And there I've I've been contacted by lots of adult women who are also lesbians who describe that they watched their peer group of their other women lesbian friends transitioning in adulthood. And we we tend to focus a lot, of course, on the childhood transition because it's of course, you know, the, the consent and safeguarding issue is so different. But can you talk a little bit about this actually not so rare experience of being an adult lesbian who transitioned. Yeah. Um, I first was, I first heard about um, trans men or transitioning in my early twenties when uh, I was in, I had a bunch of lesbian friends. I was in the community. It was kind of newly out and it just seemed overnight that like uh, all my butch lesbian friends suddenly started identifying as trans men. And I was like, what is going on here? And then Obviously, they told me why they thought they were really men. And of course, I was like, oh, yeah, me too. Check, check, check all the boxes. Um, (laughs) And so um, I actually started to identify myself as a trans man in my early 20s. I didn't really do anything about it until my early 30s. But that that identity was kind of already there. And 
just from what I've seen in the community, um, it started back then in the early 2000s, and it's just gotten progressively worse. I mean, now you're really hard-pressed to find any women, uh, lesbians, who are identifying as lesbians, one. You know, there are a lot of non-binaries. Um, and a, you're hard-pressed to find butch lesbians anymore who are just living as butch lesbians who haven't transitioned. So, so, so many have transitioned. And when I was in my first year or two of living as a trans man and going through my transition, I went to a trans support group and the vast majority of all the trans men there were lesbians. And there was even a woman in her fifties, a butch lesbian in her fifties that was attempting to transition. So I feel like this is definitely has had a huge impact on the lesbian community and it's been in the lesbian community for many, many years. Um, so. Could I ask, I would have thought that all of these lesbians and these lesbian communities had long had these conversations that there were butch women, that there were, they knew their place, that they knew their, uh, I'm astonished that they, they fell to it. Do, do you know what I mean? I, I, I just feel I must have misunderstood the pride of the butch lesbian, yeah. In my experience, we don't talk about it. We don't talk about the shame associated with being butch. We don't talk about the body dysphoria. We don't talk about the gender dysphoria. And pretty much all butch lesbians have it, far as far as I've seen. Um, we all have some kind of discomfort around our masculine presentation, but we don't talk about it. And it's kind of, you know, it's fairly well known, at least from my generation, I'm 40, that, you know, alcoholism is a big issue in the lesbian community as well. And I think there's a lot of coping mechanisms that come along with living, living this way, you know. And that's not, is, am I right in saying that's not happening for the man, the feminine, the feminine man? No, no, they, they, they get it too. Okay. They get it too. It's, it, they used to be more accepted back in the day, but um, I've noticed recently, uh, like last 10 years, that there really is this push within the gay male community. Uh, you, you see the mask, mask for mask, masculine for masculine men. Um, yeah, they, the, 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 the queenie men, the, the flamers, what you used to call um, they, they are not well liked at all either, you know, and it's really hard for them. So I could see this definitely affecting the really effeminate men and especially the young effeminate boys that might be coming up. You mentioned that when you were, kind of talking with these other, you know, female to male trans men that when they would describe what makes them trans, you said, you know, oh, I checked all the boxes too. W what were some of those boxes? Can you describe that? Um, the boxes uh, were very, <laughs> in hindsight, ridiculous because they're sex stereotypes. It was a lot of sex stereotypes. It was, I like this. I like that. You know, I like wearing men's clothes. I like men's stuff. I feel like a man well what do you mean you feel like a man well the only way to say you feel like a man is that you do the things men do or you like the things men like there's no there's no way to really describe feeling like a man but i think what what we were talking about was this discomfort with how we presented to the world and the kind of the reactions we got we felt like I, I, I act like a man. I'm presenting as a man and it's nothing I'm trying to do. It's just how I'm comfortable. So I must, there must be something wrong here. I must, there must be something wrong here. And saying that your brain is different from your physical presentation really fits that. Well, it explains it. Um, so. Well, you talked earlier about feeling disconnected from your body, you know, and I think 
dissociative experiences seem to be really common in gender dysphoric people. And so I agree 100% that all of those descriptions you shared, they are stereotypes. But I think those are kind of like the surface level justifications to try and get at something a lot deeper, which is like, I really feel disconnected from myself, from, yeah. from my body. And so I would guess that that body disconnection is probably very common amongst people who are gender nonconforming. And I'm wondering, like, in your experience, do you think that that has to do with the way society responds to gender nonconforming women? Or do you think that there's something deeper that, like, when you are really gender nonconforming, it makes you feel at odds with your sex? Uh, <laughs> I think it's it's all of it in a way. I, I definitely think the society's reaction is a big, big component. And it starts very young. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the thing. You get reaction from adults from the minute you're born. So yeah. that's all going to feed into your identity. Um, but I also think you find, for me, I found myself just not fitting in with the girls around me for the most part. Um, it just didn't seem to like the same things and be the same way that they were. So there was that feeling of disconnection from belonging anywhere. And I think as humans, we are very social creatures. And so we do find ourselves in other people. We do find ourselves in our community in a way. You're mm -hmm. not, if you're a lone wolf, you're not going to do very well. So, you know, it is a back and forth kind of thing. And if you aren't getting that feedback, you're kind of left just floating out there and you just don't know how to become yourself. You don't know how to be solid in yourself. It's funny. Remember, I've heard Sasha, you say before that a lot of times when a, when a girl says, I don't feel like a girl, I feel like a boy. It's another way of saying, I, I don't feel like, I don't feel pretty. Mm. And is there something in that? Is there something like there isn't enough representation of beautiful butch? And so it's like, uh, I have no place. I have no, I have no, I have no, nowhere to fit or something. Oh, yeah. I, I remember when, when she first, when Sasha first said that, I was like, God damn it, she's right. And I hate it. Yeah, I hate that she's right about too, that, you know, because it's so it's something that you want to fight against. Right. You want to go. No, I didn't put emphasis on the fact that people didn't tell me I was pretty as a kid. But I did because mm -hmm. I had a sister, I had a younger sister, blonde hair, blue eyes, super feminine. And everybody just fell over themselves for her. Oh, what a beautiful girl. Oh, just so gorgeous. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And meanwhile, I felt like the ogre in the background, just like no one gave me shit. No one told yeah. me anything, you know, mm -hmm. and even, even my dad's side of the family, which was my only family and my only connection to my father, they never really told me I was pretty or anything, but they fell over my sister. Mm -hmm. And that was hard because my sister, uh, we have different fathers. So that was not her family. Mm. So that was really hard to feel like I wasn't even getting the credit from my family. <laughs> she was getting it, you know. Yeah, I felt like that as a kid, like this kind of hulk in the background, just looming, <laughs> coming yeah. into a room. Like it's a, it's a, a very uneasy making feeling when you feel like just this, this, this Frankenstein's monster who's walked in, just kind of yeah. The other thing I've I've thought about too is when I was a kid, um, 
and the women around me, my my aunts and and my my uncles and stuff like that, and my cousins. So I'm the I'm the youngest cousin out of my dad's side. Like I'm a baby baby. Everybody's like 20, 30 years older than me. So they all were having kids when I was a kid. Um, when we'd have big family events, uh, very often the girls would would always get the babies. Like, oh, here, hold my baby. Hold. I never got that. No one ever wanted me to hold their baby. No one ever included me in any of that stuff. And I didn't understand why. I mean, it's not like I was really wanting to hold the baby, but I just felt like I was left out too. I was like, well, what's what's wrong with me that they don't view me as part of their group? And never, I mean, I still don't really understand what it was, but there was, I feel like they were picking up on something. The, hmm. There's so much that is coming to my mind. I guess like one thing I just want to comment about the baby thing. You said in that Velvet Chronicle article that when you came out, people in your family started to treat you like a predator and be uncomfortable to be like the women in the family were uncomfortable to be alone with you. And that well, must have that, been just, Oh, sorry. Go it was ahead. on my mom's side. Yeah. And that was okay. obviously when I was older. So I was like 19, yeah. 20 years old. Yeah. Well, I mean that, that just, that must have felt so painful and just so horrible. I don't know. It just, how did that experience land on you um really hard <laughs> like very very messed up um because i i grew up very close to that side of the family not my dad's yeah. side of the family so mm. you know i would consider them more my family family and uh to get that kind of rejection was just really hard although not surprising because overall they're a very abusive family so it's mm -hmm. it is what it is but yeah it was really hard um, and I also, I think, but honestly, the harder thing for me was the loss of my community. I had kind of found myself in as a, a young woman who is into riding horses and training horses. I was, and, and through my teen years, horses kind of helped me a lot and saved me from being really depressed and really just horrible. Like, I'm glad I grew up in the country and I'm glad I had exposure to horses and animals and stuff. Cause I think I really threw myself into there. So I was very into horses and um, I had very close friends and we all went to rodeos together and we rode together and stuff like that. And when I came out, I really got kicked out of that community. And that was freaking hard. That was so hard because that was my life. I felt like that was my soul and I lost that. And <sighs> looking back on it now, I think that was more devastating for me than anything else. And my, the women I was friends with in that community suddenly overnight once they knew they were like didn't want to be alone with me didn't want to be around me oh would make God. shitty comments you know about how i was wanting to have sex with them and i'm like oh girl no never you're oh. gross what but yeah, it's, you always the gross, it's always the gross women that think you want to have sex <laughs> with them what is with that <laughs> well um when what age were you when you came out as lesbian and did you know it for a long time before I was 20 um, and I had pretty much the first time I was like, oh, shit, I was 16. Okay. 16 was my oh, shit moment um, because I had this like very deep crush on my mom's real estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> I was so like, cute. <laughs> and there was no denying it. I was like, oh, my God. And then like, yeah. Wow. My fantasies, my fantasies were disgusting. I was like, what is wrong with me? Really? Mm. And um, I was raised very religious. So when I started to have those experiences, I went, I totally like 
started to become super religious. Like I didn't listen to any other music. I only listened to Christian music. I only watched sermons. I read the Bible every day. I fasted. I prayed. I prayed for God to take it away. I didn't want to be gay. Um, And that lasted in to about 17. I, at 17, I believe I had kind of a nervous breakdown. Um, Looking back on it now, I think it was kind of a panic disorder, nervous breakdown thing, because basically I just would have these spells of like, freaking out and shaking and I couldn't eat and I lost like significant weight in a year. Like I was so skinny. I was fitting into my sister's clothes and she was five years younger than me. Whoa. I was just skin and bones. And um, yeah. And it wasn't until I started drinking that I started to do better. <laughs> so no, the drinking really didn't help, but it did. You know what I mean? Like it was another coping mechanism. And then I started to actually gain some weight back and eat again. because so I couldn't mm. eat. And when did you first hear, if you don't mind, uh, when did you first hear of the concept of transitioning? Uh, 21. So I came out at 20 and heard about it at 21. I didn't really have much time to like be a lesbian and be okay with any of that. I was still, everything was still very new and very raw. I, I wanted to bring up, you know, there's this really interesting paper that I often reference and it's called Butch Identity Development, the Formation of Authentic Gender. And it was written in 2005. And it's basically a series of interviews with with women who are butch lesbians, who identify themselves as butch lesbians. And they're they're talking about how incredibly important in all of their development it was to actually meet a community of other women like them. Yeah, And how being able to see um, other women who present in a masculine way and confidently own that about themselves was like a really important way to get over the shame that they felt. And this is kind of something I want to tie in with this idea of like the attractiveness question, because I mean, in my experience from different like lesbian communities that I've known and been part of. I know that there is a way to honor the attractiveness of a butch woman. That's not the same thing as, oh, you're so pretty, but to be able to say that someone looks really good and still, I mean, you look at someone's features, you can't deny someone who is beautiful. It doesn't really Mm. matter how how short their hair is or whatever, but like that is something that I think is really missing too, is being able to appreciate attractiveness that looks different in different ways. And that's different from just saying, you know, well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I mean, mm. like, where is that space for like sharp looking, you know, attractive, handsome slash beautiful masculine woman? There's no such thing as that right now. It's the, it, it's a handsome trans guy. That's what yep. that becomes. Yep. So I just think that being able to see yourself represented in a way that instills pride and confidence and like you know, community is something really important. And when we see these numbers of lesbians just like dwindling down to zero, it makes it even harder for a young person coming up to be able to recognize themselves in a way that still acknowledges their biological sex. Yeah, I, I agree. Definitely. Um, when that another component, when I came out as lesbian, um, in, in in the early two thousand late nineties early two thousands, it was kind of a fad to be a lesbian. It was cool as long as you were feminine. Mm, the super yeah. feminine lesbians, fem, feminalisms with feminine lesbians, obviously male gays and whatnot. That was totally great, awesome, super cool. As long as you still wore the makeup and had the long hair. However, the masculine stuff, no. So you know that even then, I felt 
that if I could just be feminine, it would be better. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, and I, and, I think often when I was growing up, I'm a bit older than you. Uh, there was derision towards butch lesbians. It was mocked. It was a really yeah, we're made laughable. fun of. <laughs> That's awful. It's just, yeah. it makes me rage. How dare they? But that was the kind of general haha. Real butch lesbian came over. Yeah, it uh, you know, it just makes me feel we're in the halfpenny place for this. Sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, it it definitely is. You know, we're ridiculed, we're made fun of, we're the punchline of many jokes in media. Um, even like even as an older teenager, my mother worked at the female at the women's prison. She was a guard at the women's prison. And she would come home and talk about how those studs that were in there, so the really butch women, would come up to her and ask for like pads, like period products. And she would be like, oh, I thought you were a man. You didn't need those. And so she would like hold, not give them their products until like a little bit later and just be an unpleasant person to them. And hearing that as a teenager obviously had an effect because I was like, (laughs) yeah, don't let her know. (laughs) Whoa. Whoa. And when did you first, do you mind me asking, uh, think I might transition or could I transition or do you remember 21. a moment? And what, can you, could you, do you remember it? Was there a moment? Yeah. I mean, I, I fell into it real quick, real quick. I, I mean, I sought out to transition. Actually, I saw a gender specialist, a therapist and all that kind of stuff. I attempted to transition, but at that time, uh, it was still pretty difficult to do. Like you had to go through all the steps. Um, but I, I was thinking just before that, like when it went in in your mind, like I could be a man. What do you mean? As in, I wonder, was there a moment you were there, you were a butch lesbian, you knew where you were going, you were 20, you had your community. And then suddenly you thought, actually, I could be a man. I could transition. It does but seem we, like there was a there was a movement. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong. But did you have your community? I mean, you barely got no, a year. You really. barely got a year. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's the thing. The community I was in was, I mean, I was all among my peers, people of the Ooh. same age for the most part. Like in the community I came out in, the elders weren't really there. Okay. Um, the older lesbians were were barely on the scene and most of them were just kind of on their own. And the ones I knew most were my were related to my wife's side and they were like the sporty ones that just drink beer all the time and fought. And like we were all, <laughs> ugh. And it, you know when you're when you're a kid too, and you're looking at the forty year olds, you're like, "Ugh, They're go not away!" Cool. You know, exactly. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, there was an element to the community I didn't care for, like the the total emphasis on being at the bar and drinking so much and partying all the time. Even as a young person, I didn't care for that kind of stuff. I didn't mm-hmm. like that kind of club life. Okay, so you're kind of saying it was an inevitable move between twenty and twenty one too. Can I be a boy? Can I be a man? Well, I mean, it. yeah, it, there was a moment where I was like, oh, I, I could do this. I could transition. But it's it was more like I. I am. Do you know what I mean? Because it answered. I felt like, oh, I've always felt like this. I've always been wrong, obviously. So I must be and this must be the answer. Hmm. So it was kind of more like that. And obviously, I never embraced my butchness, too. I never did. It wasn't until now I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I never did. Even though I lived a huge chunk of my adult life as a butch woman, I did it by default. Like I was mm-hmm. like, that's just, 
I can't wear a dress. So this is just how I am, but I don't like it. Yeah. I think you're talking about like not being able to actually integrate yourself into your concept of who you are. It's just like, well, I happen to be like this, but I don't really like it or I don't get it or I don't know why. Yeah. Whereas I think now, I mean, I see that part of what you've done is you've actually owned how you present and how you appear to others. And can you talk a little bit about, it's interesting that you had to transition and then detransition to own that. And I'm not saying you had to, like, I'm not saying it's impossible that you could have ended up here, but I just, I'm curious about how did the process of transition and detransition open that door for you to kind of own yourself? Well, I think transition did because living and passing as a man, I don't say living as a man, but passing as a man pretty much in society. So getting treated like a average white guy really made me realize that the things I experienced as a woman was not in my head. I was being treated like shit because I was a woman and because I was a masculine woman. I always kind of thought that it wasn't real or something like I just had a disconnect from it. But when I was passing as a man and getting so much just the doors were open it was magic you know like what like what well like i mean the simplest things like every time you go to the store the check the the cashiers will always smile at you always talk to you always be super friendly super helpful everywhere you go the mechanic won't question you um you know like it doesn't matter what you do everything is like sure you got it we you know what you're talking about awesome. We're going to be super friendly to you. That's not the case when you're a woman. And that's not the case when you're a butch woman, Mm. uh, especially, or any kind of ugly woman. And I say ugly in quotation marks there. I don't think I'm ugly. But any woman who doesn't fit into the what is a pretty woman uh, gets that treatment, whether you're fat or you're this or you're that, Mm. you're going to get that treatment. And um because you're either going to get uh, the treat, you're either going to get treated nice because they want to have sex with you, or you're going to get treated like shit because you are ugly and they you're disgusting. Don't want to have sex with you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so that kind of was that that was like oh wow so yeah this is real. Then the other part of that was even though I was passing as a guy and most people thought I was a guy, I think um, I think the women knew I kind of wasn't, but most of the men didn't think second about it. Um, I didn't fit. I didn't fit. I fundamentally didn't fit in the men's culture. There was something there that I was not a part of and I never would be a part of. And I actually started to feel really disgusting about it because Mm -hmm. I would see, I saw some behavior from men that I was just like, this is disgusting. I don't want to be part of this. Um, I saw men being very aggressive, using their body and their power to intimidate people less than them or weaker than them and act and, and men, men who most people would think were great guys doing this amongst themselves when no one else was seeing, there was a woman in the room. They wouldn't behave that way, but by themselves, they would behave that way. And the other men who by everybody's standards, even my own standard would seem like nice guys would be okay with it. Hmm. And there was that, there was that behind the scenes culture that I was just like, wow, this is messed up, you know? And I think if nothing else, transition helped inform my feminism more. <laughs> so, so it really, funny. it I really heard. pointed that in there and sharpened it and made me go, "Oh no, this is this shit's real." I've heard that so often said by men that if you could hear the way men are without women, 
you'd be shocked. I've heard that so often. And you're basically corroborating that. I said, yep. Yeah. You know, I, I hear this and what, what, what I'm thinking about is that like, I remember there was a period in time in my own kind of journey of like feminist enlightenment or whatever, where I was like, man, I would just love to be a guy. Look how easy it is. Look how much. But you know what? As I've gotten older, I have said to myself over and over again, I am so glad to be a woman. And I just think even though there are certain things that certainly women deal with that men don't have to deal with, I would much rather deal with the kind of ugly side of what women do rather than the ugly side of what men do. And I mean, to be able to have like women friendships and, and be fundamentally different from men in some ways, I think it's pretty amazing. I I don't know, like having lived on both sides, do you now embrace certain aspects of, of womanhood that were harder to connect with when you were a kid, like before you transitioned? Cause I know you said you felt really disconnected before and now you're kind of owning your butch identity. So like mm-hmm. what's your relationship with womanhood like now? Um, I think really good. I think very solid and realistic about what it is and um, just kind of embracing every part of it as, as it is. And it's doesn't, it, I guess embracing womanhood as being a female, you know, not really anything else, not, not being feminine, not being straight, not being any of those things, just being female and what that means and what that experience is like, and that it's okay that we're different. Yeah. You know, the, the feminism I grew up with was definitely this feminist movement of women can do everything men can do. And that's how we find our equality. Well, we can't. And what happens as a kid when you're raised to think that way and you come up with the reality that you cannot do everything that men can do Yeah, because some of it is physical and physically women can't do some things men can do. So you, that's messed up. Don't do that. Don't frame it that way. Mm -hmm. No, we're different and that's okay. That women aren't less than because we aren't the same as men. You know, everybody has their place. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was such a such a bad stunt that was pulled on us to try and be like the men. Um, I think for our listeners, I think we should allow you to say, you know, your experiences when you try to transition in your 20s and then again in your 30s. Just that story, because I think it's very important that people do hear it if they haven't heard it. Like the difference of treatment from yeah. the medical community? I mean, you know, but, the first time when you, you tried in, in your early 20s and then you tried again, I, I think it's important that we hear this. So in my early 20s, I it was required to see a gender specialist. I found a gender specialist in my town. I went to her. She said, in order to, for, in order to start hormones, which would be the first step, you need to live in your designated gender identity or gender or sex for six months. Meaning what, dress- year, what year was that? This was 2002. Yeah, sorry. Keep going. Uh, in, Calif- in California, so uh, I had to dress as male, uh, uh, go by a male name, and kind of live as a male, and even go into male spaces. Which, for me at that time, I was like, "Are you insane? I can't do that." Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a very curvy, large-breasted woman. I can't go into men's spaces, but it was required, and I couldn't even take that step, and I couldn't bind. My breasts were way too large to do that with. So I just kind of dropped it because I was like, I can't even take this first step. Like, this is stupid. And But I was angry about it. I was just angry. And she didn't give me an alternative. She just said, here's your steps. If you can't do it, well, then there's the door, basically. I mean, she 
which wasn't that rude, but that was basically which your choice was. There wasn't any real exploration into a whole lot, although I didn't stay with her very long because she was really weird and really just like not a very good therapist. And I was like, okay, this whole thing is just bizarre. I'm out, you know? So I just kind of kept it to myself and I really did kind of think maybe one day, but right now not. And so I just kind of went through my life until my early thirties and I had a lot happen in my life. (laughs) I had a lot of loss. I had a lot of just horrible stuff happen. And I was at a time in my life where I was extremely depressed and suicidal. I mean, I've always struggled with being suicidal since I was 14. So, but it got significantly worse, but I was a parent. I knew I couldn't kill myself because I'd be really messed up. And I was trying to find a way to like feel okay. And my dysphoria was just overwhelming. And I started watching transition videos on YouTube and I got really sucked into that. And I watched it like religiously for like nine months. I held, I like hold up in my room and depressingly in the dark watched transition videos. What year are we now? What year are we now when you were in the uh, 2012, 13, 14. Yeah. Yeah. So it was yeah, really 2000. take it off. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I started transitioning in 2015. So I, I did that and then I, I pretty much was like, yes, this is the route I need to take. This makes so much sense. It's great. Awesome. And I went to, um, I didn't need to see a therapist though. That's the thing. Uh, I could have just walked into the Planned Parenthood because by that time, California was informed consent for, for hormones. They were still requiring a letter for surgery, but for hormones, they were it was informed consent. And I did go to the Planned Parenthood and I said, I want hormones. And they're like, great, awesome. Take blood work and we'll give them to you. Um, but they did ask, have you seen a therapist? And I was like, no. And she's like, well, it's not required, but we kind of encourage people to like see a therapist. And I was like, okay, whatever. Um, but I had already been seeing a therapist before that too, because I, I kind of wanted to do it right in a way. Like there was still a part of me that was trying to like sort this out. And so I went to her and I, you know, i one of our first uh, sessions, I said, um, you know, I think I might be trans but I like not sure. And I'm trying to like figure this out. And she was like, okay. And (laughs) four months later I transitioned. So she really didn't help me figure anything out because she was very affirming. Like the minute I said trans, she shut, it's like, she didn't talk about anything else other than affirming me now what I felt like. She never asked about my past. She didn't ask about any childhood stuff. She didn't ask about even homophobia, what I might be dealing with as a lesbian, she didn't ask about my family, which was really messed up, you know, because there's a whole, there's a whole family behind this. And um, she just affirmed, affirmed. I was very nervous about starting hormones. And so I, I kept being reluctant about it. And finally, she was just like, well, just try it. If you just try it, you'll know. And you can always stop. And I was like, okay. <laughs> And they're still saying that line. They're today. still saying it. I've yeah. heard so many D-trans women say that. And I'm talking D-trans women from Germany and the UK and like all over the world. It's <laughs> funny how similar our stories are, you know. But yeah, the whole just try it. It won't, it, it's no big deal. The problem is, it is. Within that first week, your body has changed and it will not be the same. It's like an illicit substance. I mean, it's like saying, you know, Try to find out if cocaine is right for you. Just try it and yeah. see if you like it. Totally it's like, try well, it out. You're going to like it because yeah. it's like a mood booster. It's an energy booster. I mean, yeah. I know there are, of course, adverse emotional effects too that tea can have for people. But 
it is a substance going into your body that biologically changes you. And so how do you know if the quote liking it is because of some magic best fit or if it's because this thing just like injected you with testosterone, which we know is like a mood enhancer. And I didn't know that at the time, you know, so like when I did take, when I did start taking it as a really depressed person, it totally did help because it did boost my mood, my energy. I felt like, woo, like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. I could do anything kind of thing. And so it really did fit into that, like, ideology of uh, if your brain's really male, testosterone is going to be a good fit. And that's kind of what they think. Like, that's, yeah. that's what they're yeah. talking about oh when they God. say, see if it's a fit. Uh, so, yeah, I started it and it seemed to be a fit. And so I just started transition. and. Um, and how did that go within four months of starting testosterone? I had my double mastectomy, which used to be unheard of. You used to have to, the surgeons used to demand you wait a year, like you had to be on hormones for a year before any surgery. And then, uh, in California in like 2015, they changed it and they changed it to where it didn't matter. And you also didn't need a letter anymore. You could just, you could just go to a surgeon and be like, I want whatever, all of this, whatever, cut this off. And they'll be like, okay. And the insurance companies were required to cover it and, and, our, and, yeah, go and our state, our state funded insurance, like our, our welfare or whatever it, uh, is required to cover this as well. So this is free. You can do this for free in California. I'm guessing that four months in you were on that testosterone high of, I can do anything like it's like cocaine at the start from what I can gather of everybody's description. It sounds like cocaine. It's decisive and powerful and quick minded. Oh, yeah. yeah. Makes you su- super, super horny. Yeah, everybody <laughs> says that. That is a totally like, that's another aspect that I, it boggles my mind. You can't take a woman and just dump like a full, like, thing of testosterone, like on a male level into her system and not expect like psychological fallout, even if, like, because that's just the whole change. That yeah. we didn't go through male puberty. We didn't have that slow kind of introduction, that development, all that kind of stuff. It's just suddenly like, boom, here's this drug. And you're kind of like, your system's just shocked, you know? Well, are you saying your libido just goes insane? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I'm thinking, too, about the body disconnection that a lot of dysphoric people have before. Like, if Mm -hmm. you feel so disconnected from your body that even, like, being intimate with your partner kind of freaks you out, and then all of a sudden, you're, as you said, Carol, super, super horny. Yeah. Of course you're going to feel like you've done something right, you know? Like, oh, this, this access to intimacy and sexuality that I just never thought I could have, now I have it, and I'm like... Making up for lost time, I imagine. Like, I imagine it might feel like that. So, no, it, it is because the testosterone overrides so much because yeah. the drive is so strong that you will do things you wouldn't have done before. Like, and what? so, I mean, in a way, <laughs> like, what? We're not going into details. The more I hear about testosterone, I had no idea it was so powerful and so extraordinary. We're not quite hearing the opposite with estrogen. We're not hearing as many stories. I'm, I'm very no, interested est- to hear estrogen, estrogen for the men tanks their sex drive. Yeah. yeah. And, I, I and mean, it makes I them cry. Yeah, yeah I've them, heard that too. Well, I mean, guys who have a hard time feeling their emotions, I mean, that's a big deal to be able to cry. I've heard some uh, people talk about that. And and if if some 
somebody has autogynephilic tendencies and their sex drive is ramped up in a way that they feel weird about, and then all of a sudden their sex drive tanks, that can feel positive that's too. Problem. Like, phew, that's under control. You I, know? I, yeah. I do think testosterone sounds like amazing. Sounds, sounds fun, to be sounds honest. amazing. Like, I can really <laughs> see what people... I've heard some detransitioners say, I often fancy going back on testosterone, and I can see why they do. I, I have I have to say I, I miss the energy. I really do miss the energy. Do you? I used to, I used to go out and be able to take long walks every single day without thinking twice about it. Just had that energy to do it, and now I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> and so carry on. So you were four months in. You had the double mastectomy. Yeah. You were high on tea. And what going. happened then? Um. I just kind of tried to like move on with my life in a way. Um, and uh, so like, I kind of, you know, I was in college, I was finishing up. Um, I just kind of kept going, but I, my mental state just started to deteriorate after about year one and a half. Um, my anxiety just progressively gotten worse and worse. I was diagnosed with a panic disorder previously to starting tea. So oh. This, one of the main side effects of tea is that it makes you more anxious. Mm-hmm. Like anxiety is a, is one of those things. Although no one ever told me that. And when I brought it up to my doctors, they, they told me that that's not true. So I don't know. Um, but it made my anxiety very, very, very bad. And so, uh, by the, by year four, I was a uh, hold up in my room, not leaving and having panic attacks several oh. times a day. So the fun stopped at some point, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it did stop. Uh, about year two or three, it just kind of, you know. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know Miles McKenna, the YouTuber, FTM YouTuber? This is this is a young person who's really famous. I mean, they have I think millions of followers, and it's a young female person who started the YouTube channel when, at the time, she was just I think in high school or something. Anyway, mm-hmm. went down the trans identity path got on tea, was on tea for a couple of years and stopped and has been off of tea for a long time and made a video talking about how I'm going to just use the person's pronouns, how he was very, very anxious and was having lots of panic attacks and went to doctor after doctor after doctor and said, I wonder why I'm having these panic attacks. Could it be the testosterone? And everyone kept saying no. And then one doctor finally said, you know what? Stop the tea and let's see how you do. And the panic attack stopped. And since this person has said, you know, I don't want to be dependent on a medication. I still identify as a trans guy. This is still who I am, but I don't want to be taking this drug forever. So I, I wonder if like the future of transgender medicine, quote unquote, is going to move a little bit in that direction where people might say, you know, I can identify how I want, but I don't want to be kind of trapped by the side effects of this medication. And I mean, I hear you talking about how bad your anxiety got. That obviously yeah. is not a way to feel your authentic self, quote unquote. That sounds really debilitating. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, I was, uh, yeah, I, same, same thing. I went every I, psychiatrist, uh, psychologist, doctor, MD, like endocrinologist, all of them. I said, is it the T? Like, because I did not, yeah, I had, I did not have it at this level. And all of them were like, no. And how, how was your gender dysphoria at that point? Um, it didn't change. 
No, I have what you would definitely consider like sex. Well, had I still have it a little bit um, like sex dysphoria, like actual issues with my biological sex and my anatomy. Like my vagina was always usually very off limits. So, I, you know, I struggled with that kind of stuff. Um, uh, but I found that transition really helped the social component. So, like, I felt much better living moving through the world as a man and everything was much easier, but it did not help the actual sex part of it because I still had those parts Mm -hmm. and it made it worse because now you're like, okay, now I'm having to worry every time I go into the male restroom. Now I'm having to negotiate that I have to sit down or use a device to stand up to pee or I can't use a urinal. I got to use a stall. Uh, You know, male spaces are very different than female spaces. Yeah. I was surprised at how there's no stalls in men's restrooms. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know what? It sounds simple, but it becomes a daily fucking thing you have to deal yeah, with. Yeah. Well, yeah. I always think, yeah, anybody who knows anything about psychology knows if you focus on something that you're distressed about, you're really in dangerous ground. So everything to do with transitioning, focus. And you know, you know what else makes you feel really like aware of your vagina is if it's atrophied and painful every day. That's not helpful. Now you're super, super aware of it. And you're like, well, this is fucking great. You know? Well, there also grows a greater incongruency between how you seem to look because you're starting to look like a male. Yeah. With what you actually know. Like, so your sex dysphoria, I imagine, will just get worse because other than socially, you still know, like, Mm -hmm. what body Every time you go to the toilet. Yeah. And so you had also kind of painful experiences with essentially i mean i try to people don't understand your female anatomy is kind of deteriorating and so Mm -hmm. that causes problems yeah yeah there was uh it's uh i've heard other trans men or detransitioners talk about this that you know there gets a point with the atrophy that like it is so bad that nothing's going in there even if you did like that before that ain't happening no matter how much lubrication you use, no matter what you do, nothing's going in there because it's so painful. And that that happens. Way to make you feel disconnected from a body part. Yeah. Like, even if you found that you connected with it because of the sex drive, which happens often, you're, you know, you're so you're so ramped up that you will go ahead and do things that you weren't comfortable doing before. And then you think, oh, I overcame this thing because I'm really a guy with a vagina or whatever the hell people say. Um, that's not really what's happening, though. What's happening is you're just really into doing stuff because you have a high sex drive. As soon as that sex drive has gone, the problem's still going to be there. <laughs> and you have to address it the old fashioned so way. For the first couple of years, uh, there's a kind of high sex drive and you're not, your vagina isn't really atrophied. And then it's starting to kick in and it, it, yeah. you know it's it's yeah and then when did you decide to detransition what was the was there a moment or anything the moment was when i uh got on antidepressants and felt like um after about a month of being on antidepressants going oh my god i feel a lot better about all kinds of stuff i also feel like i mean i still had dysphoria i still had those struggles but i felt like i could manage them like i mm-hmm. could I could wrap my head around them. They seemed a bit more compartmentalized instead of completely out of control. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of had like an oh shit moment where I was like, you got to tell me I did all this stuff and I just needed some antidepressants. 
this is some bullshit. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> and had so you never, I've, I've seen you write about that. Had you never had antidepressants before? Well, the thing, I never had antidepressants that worked. I had been on and off all these antidepressants before that just had horrible side effects for me. Come to find out I'm one of those people that there's only like two that are going to really, uh, my body's going to metabolize correctly. I had one of those DNA tests to, to ch- kind of choose out which meds would work best for me. And then uh, the first one I tried worked right with like pretty much no side effects. So it worked. And um, I was like, holy crap. So yeah, it was, it was a huge eye opener. And, but I couldn't believe it. Right. And I didn't want to, in the first month of being on antidepressants go, Hey guys, everything's great. Now I'm transitioning. Yeah. So I stayed uh, transitioned for another year after that. And, uh, but it was a year of just really processing a lot of this stuff. And then finally got to a point where I was like, you know what? I, I think it's time to stop. It's time to stop wow. this. And my, my health was deteriorating too. My cholesterol was climbing. I was going to need to be on meds for that. My, I was getting diabetic. Uh, all this stuff was coming and, uh, my blood work was continuously looking worse every time I, I went to do blood work. So that also coincided with me going, I feel better. I want to live. I don't want to die early. What am I doing to my body and just deciding <laughs> to stop? Wow. Seems like a lot of things culminated at the same, around the same time that allowed you to think through your situation differently too. I mean. Yeah. Perspective. You got yeah. to have different perspective. I mean, if you don't have another side of it, you can't make an informed decision. And. You know, one of the things I was hoping to talk with you about, which we'll just kind of send readers there or, or listeners there, but you have this amazing um, interview series on Detrans Voices with four detransitioners talking mm. about their experience in therapy. And I mean, one of the themes that, that we could see in there was that they were only really given one option. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about that too, that like, if this is a, a kind of distress why is it that we only seem to, in pop culture right now, have one answer? And actually, your story seems to prove that there are lots of things that can be done to help you deal with your life and your distress in a different way. Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really like an advocate for that now. We need, we need other options. Like, I'm not saying that the medical community should shut down transition, you know, whatever. But we need options and we need it to be treated like you treat anything else. You know, give people options, start from the least invasive and work your way up to the most invasive if the least invasive treatment is not working. And when you mean options, I know listeners will be thinking this. I have my own ideas of what you mean, but could you say what you mean when you say we mean options? We need actually we need we need psychiatry or psychology. We need therapeutic options, not just medical transition. We need an actual, we need actual therapy, you know, discovering what's behind our feelings, what's going on. Is that something we can address through therapy and not medicalization? Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RHYME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RHYME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit RethinkIME.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee 
slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 